Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you've got a Bible, go with me to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 will be our text for today. We are uh, in a series that we're going to continue today called Adventually. Everybody say Adventually. So the Advent, of course, in uh, Christian tradition, Advent meaning coming is the coming of Jesus Christ. When we talk about Second Advent, we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the most talked about Doctrine in the entire narrative of Scripture is the second coming of Jesus. Did you know the second coming of Jesus is talked about over 250 times? Did you know the first coming, that is Christmas, is only talked about about 20 times? And think about how powerful that statement just alone is right there. The overarching doctrine of Scripture that we find locked away in our Bibles is the second advent. It's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back to establish His rule and reign upon the earth. And so this month long, we all month long, we're talking about His first coming in anticipation of His second coming. And today I really want to focus in on two characters in the life of the first advent. And those two characters are the essentially adopted father of our King Jesus and the mother of Jesus, Mary. I want to focus on our time to de- together today on Joseph. I, I just want to make a confession through the years, um, it has become a passion of mine to preach on the Christmas story. In fact, um, many, many years ago doing student ministry, I would get so excited about the series around December more than any other series. There's just so much in the Christmas story that just incites wonder in me. And as I was preparing two weeks ago for this message, um, God just really began to stir my heart again to look at Joseph and realize how following Jesus really is difficult in seasons of our lives. So if you're here this morning, um, I make no apologies about it. Today's message is going to be a, a tad bit challenging. And uh, I want to give you that disclaimer up front. But this is the life of Joseph. What it means to really follow Jesus. Somebody said, well, we just got done with a series called Follow Me. I know. I took Follow Me and eventually and put them together in today's message, all right? So I want you to follow along with me just for a few moments. Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who simply lack the resolve to genuinely follow Jesus. They really do. They would like to. I've met a lot of people that are believers, a lot of people that are Christians. They really want to go all in, if you say. But go on all in requires a motivation beyond what a lot of people have. It requires a motivation. Motivation comes from the word motor. You've got to have a motor to continue to sustain you for a lifetime. And so we're going to examine what the motor of our sustainability is today. What is our motor of continuing to follow Jesus? And a lot of people, just quite honestly, they don't have the motivation. I think I've been surrounded by those kind of people most of my Christian life. They follow Jesus when it's easy. They follow Jesus when it is convenient, when they're a part of a group of friends who are all doing it. They follow Jesus when it fits naturally within their lifestyle, but they lack the, if I can use this word, the verve to do it when it's hard. They lack the wherewithal, but to stand alone, to swim upstream, to do that by themselves, to keep going when there's nobody standing behind them saying, come on, come on, come on. That's when they putter out 
and they fall behind. That's when they fall behind. Make no mistake about it, church, to actually follow Jesus is difficult. Amen? It's difficult. It's not easy. There's a great irony in the Christian life. The great irony in the Christian life is that the Christian life in following Jesus ushers you into a life that is simultaneously the most joyful yet the most difficult life on earth. It's the simultaneous irony of the Christian existence is that it's the most joyful existence, yet it's the most difficult existence. In fact, John 10 and 10, Jesus says that I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Psalm 16 and 11 says that in God's presence there's fullness of joy. Christmas is about joy. And at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Psalm 84 and 10 says better is one day in the court of the Lord and in God's presence than 10,000 days anywhere else. But Matthew 16 tells us that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be difficult because we've got to take up our cross. We get to deny ourselves and follow him. And when Jesus says you must take up your cross, I don't know what kind of image that gives to you in your mind. But in the ancient world, when Jesus said take up your cross, that was not a pleasant image. Let's reinsert ourselves into a different culture for a few moments. Today we wear crosses made out of diamonds. They're diamonds around our necks as pieces of jewelry. We put them as tattoos on our bodies. We put them as decals in the back of our truck windows. But back then, the cross was not a symbol of anything other than oppression, torture, and death. That caused horror in people who saw it. No one drove down Highway 92 and saw a cross and thought that was okay. It was a horrifying symbol. In those days, let me just be honest with you, normal nice people didn't get a cross tattooed onto them. They didn't do that. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example of this. Imagine you went over to someone's house today, and above their baby's crib, they had a little hangman's noose. And you left the room of the nursery, and you went into their, their kitchen, and above their kitchen table, they had a picture of an electric chair. <laughs> and you left the kitchen with the electric chair, and you walked over to the next room and they had a picture of a man standing in front of 50 people who were in a firing squad about to shoot him to his death. Now if you did that in today's culture, in Western culture, you're not staying there for dinner. <laughs> and you're certainly not sending your kids there for a play date. Okay, That's not the house they're going to spend the night at. But yet we do that with crosses now because we don't understand that cross is a symbol of torture. A cross in the ancient world is a symbol of great oppression. Great fear would be incited. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that if the resurrection is not true, church, he said then the followers of Jesus are people that are most ought to be pitied in the whole world. We as followers of Jesus, if the cross is true but the resurrection is not true, we should be the most pitied. Because our lives are, are characterized by a cross and our lives are characterized by suffering. So for Paul, you got to understand, following Jesus meant suffering, sacrifice, and persecution. For, for Paul, following Jesus meant living with unanswered questions. And in dying, in many ways, to the culture around you as a loser. Dying as a loser. Dying with unfulfilled dreams. Now in Western culture, we say, follow Jesus and He'll fulfill your dreams. But in the first culture, they would say, follow Jesus and you'll be, you'll be left with all kinds of unfulfilled dreams. It's exactly opposite. It really is. Paul said, I'm going to get to the end of my life, and it's all a hoax. If it's all a hoax, he says, I'm not going to say, oh, well, it was still great. <laughs> if the resurrection wasn't true, he's not going to say, oh, well, it was still abundant life. 
Oh, glorious delusion. I lived 60 years in a delusion, you know. Oh, I feel great about my life. He wouldn't say that. He says, no. If the resurrection is a delusion, all of this is a delusion, and it's not an abundant life, he said, I am the most pathetic person in the world. If the resurrection is not true. Can I ask you a question this morning? Does the resurrection have to be true for you to consider your life good? And if not, you're not living a life of sacrifice. In other words, the way we live, we can't get to the end of our lives. Because I hear a lot of Christians say, man, this is horrible, but I hear it. They say, oh, even if it's not true, it was still a great life. Paul would say, no, no, if it's not true... My life was horrible, and it was pathetic, and it was pitiable. We should live our lives in such sacrifice that the resurrection must be true for our life to be considered worthwhile. For our life to be considered good. To actually go all the way with Jesus, church, you got to have a strong grasp on why he's worth it. you got to really have a grasp on it. This is what you see in Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew shows you right out of the gate how difficult it is to follow Jesus and how Jesus' first followers found the motivation to do so. By the way, if I ask you to name Jesus' first followers, pop quiz, Jesus' first followers, most people say, oh, Peter, James, John. But Matthew says, no, the first followers of Jesus come down to two people that make a voyage to Bethlehem. The first followers of Jesus start out with a mother named Mary and an adopted father named Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, begin reading with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, the Bible says resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, first, let's talk about betrothal. Everybody say betrothal. It was the Jewish custom called kiddushin in Hebrew, a young man and a his fiance would get legally married, but they had to wait a year before they were allowed to sleep together or have sex. So they would get married, they would be legally together, but they were not able to consummate that relationship for a year. Which has to be, by the way, the dumbest tradition ever invented on the planet, okay? There's no dumber tradition than that, all right? Thank God I'm not living in that day, right? Well, one of the reasons why they did that was to make sure the girl was pure. This is why they did this. This is very prevalent in the Jewish culture. You say, what do you mean? Well, in those days, marriages were assigned. They were arranged, I should say. So your parents got to choose, which is a re another reason or reason number 412 that I'm glad I didn't live back then. Because if I did, I I'm afraid but maybe what I've been chosen. Anybody else, you, you don't know what would have been chosen for you, right? But uh, when you chose a wife for your son, you had to pay this huge bride price to the bride's family. It's called the dowry. Okay, for this part would actually be awesome because I got two daughters, as you know, and somehow I don't think I don't think that their two weddings are going to be cash positive events for the Mosgrove household, right? I think they're going to be cash negative events. But but I think that would be a cool part. But the first part would not be so good. Well, anyways, the parents paying the price wanted to make sure that the girl was pure, so they required a year of waiting for their son to have consummation with that wife, to sleep together, to make sure she wasn't what we would say pre-pregnated or whatever you want to call that. After the year was over, then you could live together because it was clear whether or not she was pregnant or not, and you can now move forward in intimacy in that relationship. But in every other way, understand, during the betrothal, you were considered married. You were considered married. But to get it, and actually to get out of it, you had to have an official divorce. That's what the text just said. 
he was going to divorce her quietly, but you were betrothed, Joseph. I don't understand Matthew 1, 19. Well, it's because you were married in every way other than the consummation, the act of intimacy. Now, during this betrothal period, Mary shows up pregnant. She shows up pregnant. Can you imagine for a minute just how painful and humiliating this was for Joseph? I mean, just imagine for a moment. What would it have been like to hear from the girl you just married that your parents paid a big, big dollar for, but you haven't been allowed to sleep with yet, and she comes up to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant. Now, Joseph, of course, does not believe her. He's like, oh, right, the Holy Ghost got you pregnant, and he gave you a pet unicorn, too, in your backyard, too. Is it pink? Has it got blue turquoise eye? You know, like, I mean, he doesn't believe this. Like, how could you believe this? But Joseph, for whatever reason, whatever it was worth, he was a good guy. He was kind, so he arranged to break the betrothal quietly. You've, you need to understand, legally, he could have stoned her. He could have killed her right there. In Jewish law, that would have been good. You understand this? He could have killed her. She's pregnant outside of wedlock. Verse 20. But as Joseph, verse 20, considered these things, behold, everybody say, behold. Are y'all with me this morning? Come on, is anybody with me this morning on this great, wonderful December morning? Anybody? Come on, let me hear you. All right, just be with me. He said, behold. Come on, say, behold. He said, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Everybody say, Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, so he did, or he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, verse 25, but knew her not. Knew her not, meaning did not have intimacy with her. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Do you ever wonder, why in the world did God do it this way? Why? I mean, it ruined both of their reputations for the rest of their life in Israel. Why do you do it this way, God? The angel didn't show up and explain the situation to everybody else. The angel didn't show up and explain the vision God's given you to all the people around you. The angel didn't show up and tell all of her family that this was the, the Son of God coming into her womb. He didn't send out a news bulletin on the Times Galilee Press, if you, if you know what I'm saying, or, or the Bethlehem whatever Chronicle. He didn't do that. He didn't tell her family and friends. Everyone else from that point on thought of Mary as an impure girl. When they looked at the yearbook pictures years later, showing their kids where the teenagers wrote in the back, they always pointed at her and said, oh, look, you remember what happened to her? Remember the old Mary? Remember old Mary from Bethlehem? Yeah, Mary. Woo! Woo, 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 Who knew she had a dark side? Anybody know? She's a nice little church girl, little Jewish girl, looking all good. No one knew she had a dark side, got pregnant, 14 years old. Listen, there is no extra biblical evidence that any clarification or vindication was made by God until 30 or 40 years later when the New Testament writers wrote the book. She's lived 30 or 40 years with a ruined reputation because of what Jesus wanted to do through her. 30 or 40 years. And when Joseph married her, it seemed like he was confessing that the baby was actually his. This pregnancy, by the way, church, ruined both of their reputations in the community. Ruined it. Mary didn't get the storybook wedding she'd always dreamed about with her dad walking her down the aisle and all of her friends and family present. I know that for many women, your wedding day is the most highly anticipated 
planned for, might I add, expensive day of your life. Just because Mary lived 2,000 years ago, don't assume that when she was vastly different from you. She wasn't. Her dreams of her own beautiful wedding, shattered, ruined, not by an angry mother-in-law, but by Jesus. Jesus ruins her reputation. Not only that, eventually they would have to flee their homeland because of who? Jesus. Gee, thanks, Jesus. Everything changed. The old song said, a baby changes everything. Is this the abundant life, Mary said to God? Is this what you, is this the is this what you signed up for? When you became a believer. Is this the type of abundant life Jesus brought? Is this what is this, is this where I signed the dotted line? Why did God do it this way? I think, church, that the Holy Spirit's laying out the pattern from Jesus' birth of what it's going to take for everybody else to follow him for the rest of time. This is what it's going to take. That was the price for following Jesus. Let me give you four elements. Everybody say four. Four elements from Joseph's life about following Jesus. Then I'm going to show you where Jesus, Joseph got the strength to do these. Let me show you where Joseph got the strength to do these four things. Joseph, by the way, church, is not just an inspiring figure from the past. He's a compelling example for the present. He lays before us what it takes for us to follow Jesus. Here's what following Jesus looks like. Number one, trust and absolute obedience. Following Jesus looks like trust and absolute obedience. Joseph, listen, had to believe the impossible, that is, a pregnancy by divine inspiration, and he had to risk everything on his life on that impossibility. Joseph had to risk everything on an impossibility called the virgin birth. He risked it all. He gave up all. i never forget, a few years ago, I was in Guatemala City. I got to sit down with a group of people in an interview setting. There was a, a man there who I'm just going to call Timothy. Timothy was from Egypt. Uh, several people around me had met him years ago. He lived in Egypt as an Islamic imam. Islamic imam just means he's an Islamic priest. He was a Muslim. He met a church planter from the USA, a USA church planter, come over to Egypt and, and planted a church. He met this church planter, and after a few months of reading the Bible and really mulling it over, he became a convert to Christianity. A convert. He would take his journal out, he told us in this meeting, he would take his journal out and he would write prayers to Jesus every day of his life. He thought it was private because he kept it underneath his bed in his room. One day he went out for a day, he comes back in the evening and there are soldiers and Muslims gathered all outside of his door and they open up as he walks to the front door and his mom comes forward and she's holding the journal. And she walks up to his face, she slaps him, takes her shoe off, slaps him in the forehead, spits in his face, rubs it in his face and said, are you the one writing these prayers? And at that moment, I'll call Timothy, said, yes, I was the one writing them. His mother then proceeds to punch him. He doesn't retaliate. The Muslims gather around him and they beat him to a pulp till they thought he was dead. They drug him. This is just like Paul's story in Lystra and Derby. They drug him and left him on the ground. He gathered enough strength after some time and he walked back in and he said, this is not just prayers I'm giving now. He says to us, he said, that was the cost and price for me following Jesus. I said, the price for me was I had to, had to open my mouth and confess it. And a group of people that accepted it. He said, that was my price. He said, it was worth it. Let me tell you something. Timothy doesn't do that because Jesus is his preference. 
Timothy does that because he believed Jesus got up out of the grave. You don't follow Jesus for a lifetime until you know that he was resurrected from the dead. Until you have full assurance and confidence and you cast your life on the impossibility that our Jesus is who he said he is. By the way, the church planter who went to Egypt to plant that church, he didn't leave his homeland and give up his dreams of a prosperous career in America to carry the gospel to Egypt just because he loved foreign cultures. You don't become a missionary because you like diversity. It won't last. It'll last three weeks. You become a missionary because you believe, Acts 4 and 12, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It's a confidence. It's an unwavering trust and a faith and obedience to Jesus. That's what it is. A lot of you, even in this room, you've made huge sacrifices, even in this church, to go in all in financially with the kingdom of God. Go all in financially with whatever God's asked you to do. And the only reason you'll ever do that, I'm going to tell you, is because you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that His promises are true and His kingdom's eternal. In fact, listen to me. If you struggle being sacrificial, if you struggle being giving, let me tell you why. It's not because you're fearful. It's because you lack confidence in the promises of the unseen God. You lack confidence in His Word. You lack confidence in who He says it. People who lack confidence in God's promises will throw some guilty money in the bag from time to time. But they'll never give in a sustained, sacrificial way until they know Jesus got up. You won't. Listen to me. To forgive a father who has sexually abused you as a child takes a bold forgiveness and confidence in God's forgiveness and his ability to work all things for good. Because without that, you'll never have strength to forgive. I'm going to say something really clearly. Oprah is not going to give you the resources to forgive a father who's abused you sexually. Oprah or Dr. Phil is not going to give you the resources or the motor to stay continually in a stance of forgiveness towards a husband who has abused you. That only comes from seeing God's forgiveness is bigger than your forgiveness. And God's ability to work for good in your life is greater than other people's ability to work for evil on your behalf. That's the motor. That's the motivation. Following Jesus, church, listen, really following him, not just playing religious games, meant absolute trust in the unseen God. Trust in the impossible. Number two, to follow Jesus, you accept an acceptance of a sentence of death. It's an acceptance of a sentence to death. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Mary's out of wedlock pregnancy put her under a literal death sentence in Jewish law. Beyond that, Mary and Joseph had to die to their good name, their cherished dreams, their families, their homelands. Listen to me. God is going to direct some of you to go overseas. He will. And your parents are not going to understand. And they will tell you that you're crazy. And they'll do all that they can to forbid you. And they're going to tell you that you're wasting your life. You're going to be a church planner. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to be a leader. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your resource. They're going to tell you. And in some ways, you're going to have to choose... Are you going to obey God or are you going to please your parents? Listen to me very carefully. I'm not speaking to middle school and high school students. Middle school and high school students, your parents have the right biblically to forbid you to do anything. But the moment you get out, the moment you get out, listen, the question becomes, are you going to follow Jesus or follow mom and dad? Are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to follow parents? I mean, it's, it's the reality of, of how following Jesus really plays out in our lives. And in some ways, when you dis, 
agree or go a different direction than the people around you want you to, it feels like a sentence of death. It feels like death. It feels very hurtful. John Bunyan, he uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, did you know that's still the, the greatest nonfiction um, English book of all time? Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. He was married. He had three kids, one of which was blind. He spent many years in prison for preaching the gospel in his own country. They come to him one time in prison. And they say, all you've got to do is stop preaching the gospel. We'll let you go back to your wife and your kids. We will release you. We will never bother you again. You can go be united with your family. Here's the very words he wrote. The part, I think I put it in your card. The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. I've often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family has had to meet with, especially my poor blind child, who lay near in my heart and all I have besides. If I would ever suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyments, all as dead to me and myself dead to them. Sounds harsh, Craig. That's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26. If any man come after me, he will deny himself. Yes, he will hate mother and father, wife and children. Yes, even brother and sister. People say, well, that's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And those Jesus words. I tell people all the time, when I say those words, you've got to understand Jesus said them. So if they're hard and you want to leave, you just got to leave. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to get around those type of, of texts. That's, that's our Savior saying, does he mean you build hatred in your heart towards your family? No! Look at the context of Scripture. He's not saying, I want you to pro. He's not talking about being a delinquency, being a father or a husband. He's not saying if you're a husband and you're a bad husband, Jesus wants you to hate your wife even more. No, in fact... Following Jesus should make you a better husband. It should make you a better father. It should give you greater love for your wife, greater love for your children. But what he's saying is that your love and your commitment to Jesus has to become strongest of anything else in your life. Your love and commitment, obedience, it's a sentence of death. Third thing, self-denial. Self-denial. This is something that Joseph had to go through, self-denial. You say, what do you mean? Look at verse 25. The Bible says that Joseph did not know. Everybody say no. He didn't know Mary or, or have sex with her until after the birth of Jesus. Okay? So catch this. Not only did he have to wait a year in betrothal, um, he waits another year after he finds out she's pregnant. Okay? That's pretty significant, I think. Is that not significant? That's pretty significant. Which means following Jesus means denying yourself of some things that you might otherwise enjoy. Things that you might otherwise enjoy not following Jesus. Like we have singles. I've been in student ministry for 12 years. We've got singles, many singles in this church. And I tell singles all the time, listen. Because I know singles that aren't willing to have, that aren't willing to wait to have sex. And they're not even married. And I'm looking at Joseph. He was married and he waited to to do this because it was the will of God. And people say, well, that's one part of God's command I'm just not going to embrace. That's just one part I'm not going to say. I'm like, listen, until you're willing to forsake what he's forbidden, you can't follow him. You can't be a follower when you're willingly embracing what he forbids. You can't do it. I know that's not popular. I know it's not popular. But you can't. You can't follow. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to consent to do things His way, even if it means denying yourself of things you might otherwise want to do, want to enjoy. How many times have I preached in churches and we have couples that are listening over and over and over that are not married, but they're cohabitating, they're living together. And I say with great compassion, but with great fervor, if you're going to have Jesus in your family, you're going to have to do things His way. You don't skip the things you want to skip out of convenience. You can't do that. You can't do that. This is what Joseph teaches us. Here's the fourth thing Joseph teaches us. It's a willingness to embrace inconvenience. It's a willingness to embrace inconvenience. Notice Joseph in following Jesus. Do you realize how much Jesus' birth complicated Joseph's life? It messed up his relationship with his friends. It messed up his relationship with his, fr- his family. It messed up his, his job. I mean, literally, in this world, you've got to understand, in the ancient Eastern world, if you had a bad reputation, people didn't bring you their business. So he literally lost his job because of the community reputation. He literally lost everything. He gave it all up. Not only that, guess what he had to do? He eventually had to move and start over. He eventually moves cities, starts all over again. You know, in church life, many people, they don't ever engage in, in serving. They don't volunteer. They don't jump onto a team because it's not convenient. I mean, I've heard it my whole life. Well, it's, it's really hard. I work hard all week. I got kids. I'm like, yeah, I look forward to hearing you explain that to Mary in heaven. Whoa, this is a hard message for December, isn't it? Well, it's the one God gave me. i got to keep going. I'm just going to keep preaching. I can preach into the back wall. Mary's like, yeah, I had to bear a son for nine months who wasn't even my son. And eventually I had to flee the country because of him and totally have a reputation run for the rest of my life. You got kids? Tell me about your story, oh great man of faith. The people in our church, by the way, who serve our community, Guess what? They don't do it because it's convenient. They do it because they're committed to Jesus. The people who engage, they don't do it because it's convenient. They do it because they're committed to Jesus and his church. By the way, this year, we're hoping, man, God will expand and multiply, hopefully, some ability for us to get in some public schools and do some programs where we can need mentors and mentor some students. You know what? It's not the most glamorous, incredible thing to go mentor some students. And people in this church, well, I know, because I know this church, an amazing church, they'll do it not because it's convenient. They'll do it because Jesus told them to serve the least of these. They'll jump in to serve in any capacity. Listen, I know not every ministry is for every person. Listen to me. I know that. If I was to tell you every ministry is for every person, that would be totally untrue. I know not every ministry is for every person, but I want to ask you a question. Do you right now in your life have a ministry that's inconvenient for you? If you don't have a ministry that's inconvenient for you, there's a good chance you're not following Jesus to the level he wants. Because inconvenience is a part of the embracing. It was from Joseph Joseph, and it is to the end of time. Is taking up a cross ever convenient? It's never convenient, is it? Adopting and fostering children. We've got people in our, our community right here that adopt and foster children. Is adopting and fostering children ever convenient? No. Just talk to someone who's done it. And if you start adopting or, or fostering children because it's a preference or a fad or you think it'll look cool on your Christmas card, that'll last about three, three and a half minutes. That'll last three weeks. You do it for one reason, because God told us to care for the one who everybody else forgot about. 
You do it because you're embracing inconvenience for the sake of following your Savior. You do it because the love of God is constrained. You sharing Christ is rarely convenient for me. Is, is sharing Christ convenient for you all? It's very rarely convenient for me. Whether that's reaching out to a neighbor next door or striking up a conversation with a guy next to me on the plane, it's very, very rarely convenient. There have been times where I did not want to reach out to my neighbors. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm like, I'd rather just hang out with my friends, God. i got enough people in my life. I don't need to memorize any new names. And I feel like I'm walking across the street, and I'm like, oh, i got too many friends already, too many friends. Hey, what's your name? My name's Craig, you know? And it's like, you got to do it. Why? Because the Great Commission says we got to do it. we got to embrace inconvenience. I don't matter how many friends I have, i got to embrace my neighbors. It starts with loving my neighbors. It starts with meeting the needs of the people around me. Thankfully, I love all my neighbors. It's not a problem at all. I love them. We do it because of the Great Commission. I was sitting next to a guy on a plane several several. Uh, several years back, and I thought, you know what, I'm so tired, and I would, I would rather just rest and read my book. It had been a few exhausting days of ministry, and I'm thinking, I just want to rest. God, all I want is one hour of book time. Lord, just grant my request. I just want to rest, and I sit down, and it happens to me every single time on the plane. As soon as I get on the plane, the dude next to me is never a believer, and the Holy Spirit always pricks me. Start up a conversation. Start asking him questions. Start talking to him. And so here I do, right? I'm like, okay, I'm yours, Holy Spirit. At least I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to start the conversation just to see if you take it anywhere. If you don't take it anywhere, awesome. I'll kind of be okay with that. I'll get to read. But, you know, if you want to take it somewhere, God, I mean, you really did die for him. So uh, let me just get over my pride for a minute, you know, my desire to rest. It's like, you know, it's like, Jesus, I need a, I need a break. And he's up in heaven like, yeah, I hung on a cross six hours on a Friday naked and you need a break on the plane. I know, bless your heart, three days of ministry. inconvenience. If we're going to racially diversify this church, which is absolutely the heart and desire to totally racially diversify this church, it's not going to be convenient. You know what that means for the new year? We're, we're going we're to get people who are not like you and don't share your background, and that's going to take intentionality on your part. You know what that means? We're going to have worship music that's not your favorite. It's someone else's favorite, and you'll get over your favorite for the sake of somebody else's favorite. That's a church that's committed to mission, not convenience. That's a church that's committed to the Great Commission and the work of Jesus, not what we just desire. If the divining characteristic you're looking for in a community of faith or a church is convenience, there are probably some churches out there for you. But to be faithful to following Jesus, we could not be a church like that. For us to become the movement of people that God wants dwelling place movement to be, it's going to take embracing inconvenience for the sake of mission. It's going to be a willingness to say, you know what? There's going to be people from here that are going to be a part of setup teams when we launch churches in remote places. When we launch churches in school auditoriums, there's going to be people here that may spend years of your life waking up at 4 a.m. on Sundays and doing setup teams for years of your life at 5 a.m. There's going to be people probably sitting in this very room that will be a part in that way. So the reality is, our priority can't be convenience. Our priority has to be the mission of God. This is Joseph's lesson. This is Joseph's life. Here's one other. Can I just say one other one? It's, this is like a home day. It's like a homecoming day. It's a snow day, so I just, I'm just going to go. Can I, can I keep going just a minute? Here's one other. It's inconvenient for me to take a stand on what the Bible teaches about the sin of homosexuality. Can I tell you a confession of what I feel as a pastor many times, folks? I am totally scared of where this is headed in our society. 
And it would be a whole lot easier for me to just say, you know, it's no big deal. It's just a personal preference. That's an inconvenient truth. Just preach on God's acceptance. God's acceptance over a period of time will make the homosexual turn. Right? Just continue to love, which is true to a degree, but God defines what that love looks like. And I battle this in my head all the time. And, and quite honestly, and scared more and more of what the culture moving to. It's very inconvenient to teach what the Bible says about these things. But if you're going to walk with God in a world that's allied against Him because they're enemies in the minds of God, we got to get used to it. So my encouragement to us is we will be misunderstood, mistreated, misaligned, and ultimately persecuted for it, even in this nation. You already see it happen. It's only going to get worse. It's not going to go this way. It's going to continue to go this way. So there's four things you see in Joseph's life. Number one, trust and absolute obedience. Number two, acceptance of a sentence of death. Number three, self-denial. And number four, a willingness to embrace inconvenience. Now, where does the strength come from to do those things? That's what we need to talk about, right? This would be a bad sermon if I didn't dismiss right now and just did Nike. Just go do it. Woo, it would be a bad sermon. <laughs> you walking out here moping. Because we can't do those things on our own. We can't do that. I can't embrace inconvenience just for the sake of embracing inconvenience. I can't do it. Have trust and absolute obedience just for trust and blind obedience. Joseph, listen, did not have a moment of emotional surrender. This was the beginning of a lifestyle of those four things through every part of his life. And this is really important because unless you get this, you'll never make it in a sustained way. We'll put it that way. Say that um, people say, well, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not willing to embrace that sacrifice. And I'm always saying, you're not willing to embrace that sacrifice because you don't know the worth of the treasure. You're only willing to embrace the sacrifice when you know the worth of the treasure. The worth of what you gain. Say that right before you boarded a plane. Let me give you a quick example of this. For a long flight to Europe, let's say Asia. Let's say Johannesburg, South Africa. That's 18 hours. That's a good one, all right? So before you get on a, long, a big plane to Johannesburg, South Africa, I gave you a big old backpack. It was huge. And I said, you got to sit with it for those 18 hours. You're already cramped with leg room. You're going to go economy plus if your name's Jonathan Craig Mosgrove. You, you, I mean, you're full. I mean, your legs are going to be broken, right? You, you can afford the extra $50. No first class, but at least the extra 50 for the extra six inches, you know? But you get on that flight of 18, uh, 18 hours, and you think, you know what? i got to put the backpack on. And I said, hey, would you put this backpack on? You're going to look at me and say, no, you would not be excited about it. I'm cramped. This is a drudgery. But if I said, hey, put this backpack on, and inside this backpack is a parachute, and I can go ahead and tell you with great confidence that at 33,000 feet, this plane's going to obliterate. You're going to survive, but you're going to be falling midair from 33,000 feet. Now you get that backpack on, and it wouldn't be a drudgery. It'd be a joy. You'd do it willingly because you know what? The value of it. You know the value of it. The reason we're able to embrace sacrifice is because we know the value of what that gives us. The value of what that provides. Oh, let me give you another example if that one didn't make. If, what, if I told every girl in this room, over the next, um, the next year, your waistline is going to increase six inches, and you're going to gain 15 pounds. No girl in this room would be excited about that. None. You're going to gain six inches on the waistline, 15 pounds. Yet there are some of you, if I promise that, that very thing is going to happen, and you rejoice because you've been trying to get pregnant for years. Ah, yeah. People say, well, it's not six inches and 15 pounds. Well, it's a little more than that. Well, I don't, I don't look at, we men don't look at weight. I just saw my wife told us, told me she gained weight, and I just said, you're just glowing, and you look the same, babe. You believe that, right? 
But you understand what I'm saying. You put up with your lost figure and the extra weight gladly because of the joy of what's about to come out of your body. You got to know the joy. You got to know the treasure. You say, well, I don't know. Listen to me. All of us and all of you have the capacity to sacrifice. It just has to do with your perception or awareness of the reward of that sacrifice. What is the reward to sacrifice in that way? Here's the strength. Number two, where the strength to follow Jesus comes from. I see two of them. Everybody say two. First of all, look at, look at verse 23 again. What's the first word? He says, behold. Everybody say behold. Behold in Greek is this word adu. And it's an extremely strong word. It's saying, look at this. When it says behold, he's saying, look at this. Because when you see this, you'll have the strength to do what God's asking you to do. The angel says, Mary, behold. Why? Because if you'll behold, you'll gain the strength to do what I'm about to tell you to do. You understand? So what do we have to behold? What two things do we have to behold to gain the strength to do what Jesus is asking us to do? Look at verse 23. What is he telling him to look at? What's he telling Joseph to look at? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the first thing God tells Joseph to behold. Number one, a kept promise. you got to behold a kept promise. By the way, did you know this verse? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a quote from a prophecy in Isaiah 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 14. And it's actually a kind of strange one. Let me give you the context real quick. Let me unpack it for you. Originally, this prophecy was given to a king in Israel named King Ahaz. King Ahaz was in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, in 700 B.C. The armies of Syria were about to destroy and attack the kingdom. And King Ahaz was there. And King Ahaz was so wicked, the Bible says he knew it, that he didn't even feel like he could ask God for help, so he despaired. He refused to pray. He would not pray. He just thought the Syrian armies are going to overtake us. Well, however, in the midst of this, word came through the prophet, and the prophet Isaiah said God was not going to allow the kingdom to be destroyed because God wanted to keep his promise to Abraham. So even though Ahaz was wicked and wouldn't pray, God said, I'm not going to destroy the nation you're king over right now because I made a promise about another 1,000 years ago to a man named Abraham. And I made that promise, and I'm going to keep that promise even in spite of your own wickedness. And the Bible says Isaiah tells Ahaz that God is going to give him a sign. And Ahaz says, nope, don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think the Syrian armies are going to overtake us. And God says to him, nope, God says you're not, and he's going to give you a sign of it. That's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, unbelievably, Ahaz doesn't even want a word from God because then he would be obligated to do the word from God. So he says, nope, don't give me a sign. Don't give it. And Isaiah says, you don't get to make the rules. Here's your sign. I just pause real quick and say, God's going to accomplish his purposes whether you want him to or not. All right? He said, here's your sign. That's Jeff Foxworthy. And here's your sign. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Everybody say Emmanuel. means God with us. Now, the word virgin in Hebrew can mean one of two things. It can mean a girl who's never been with a man, or it could mean a girl of marriageable age. Now, I want you to understand this a minute. It's not just a girl who's never been with a man. It could also be marriageable age. In this context, everybody would assume it meant a girl of a marriageable age. And they would have been like, a young woman shall conceive. Big deal, Isaiah. Women conceive every day. You need to follow me. Don't lose me right here. Big deal. A marriageable lady getting pregnant? It's no big deal. 
Young women conceive all the time. That's like saying the proof of this prophecy is that the birds will chirp and the dogs will bark. Like, okay, strong prophecy there, you know. Great sign, God, you know. And it happened. Someone in Ahaz's household had a baby and that was the sign. But it didn't seem impressive. And did you know for 700 years that prophecy was totally a mystery because it seemed out of place. This is what we call the double fulfillment of prophecy. I don't have time to fully teach on this, but it's initially fulfilled in the nation of Israel and then completely filled in Jesus. This happens all through the Old Testament. And so now this is a mystery. So pour forth the sun. But now through the angel, God says, this is actually what I was talking about. It wasn't a baby in your household, Ahaz. And it's not just that a young woman will conceive, but a a virgin, which is the other meaning of that word, a woman who has not been with a man, a girl who's never been, will conceive. And that's a little more impressive. That's the virgin birth. And in that miraculous birth, God says, I will deliver Israel from all of their fears, not just the, the armies of Syria, and I will deliver and fulfill all of my promises to Abraham's descendants. And what God is saying is Ahaz was seeking deliverance from an invading army, but God was promising ultimate deliverance from all enemies. My God, I get excited about that. I'm sorry, just stick with me. And in that moment, Joseph, for the first time, knowing the prophecy, saw that God was faithful to keep his promises even to 700 years. God was faithful to keep every word of prophecy he had given with complete fulfillment. And now Joseph has the confidence to say, you know what, even though the time looks dark, even though the time looks difficult, even though it looks like Israel had been overrun by her enemies, God took an obscure prophecy and he brought ultimate fulfillment through it. And he showed Joseph that day through the angel, God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Here's what you should see from that. God kept all his promises then. He'll keep all his promises now. He kept them all then. He'll keep them all now. A lot of you ask right now, is God really active in the world, Craig? How could, you, how could God be active in the world? What's going on? with? How could anything that's going on be anything but random? What's happening? Even in the news this week. If God is really involved in this, why is it all such a mess? The world looks out of control. How is God involved in this? Or maybe you're asking about your life this morning. Where is God in my life? Is God really there? Is he really active? Is he really working things in my life? Here's the sign. Behold. Everybody say behold. A virgin conceived, not shall conceive. Behold, the sign is a virgin already conceived. And not just that, the virgin baby grew up to die on a cross, be placed in a grave, and then rise again. There's your sign. Here's your sign, Jeff Foxworthy. The virgin has already conceived and brought forth a son, and he lived a sinless life, and he died on a cross, and on the third day he resurrected, and 40 days later he ascended to the Father, and 10 days later he poured out his Holy Spirit, which we now see and hear. Some of you, listen to me, you, you, you doubt in times of your life, You doubt God's existence based on the fact that he hasn't done what you wanted. If you ask Marley, Harper, and Knox to build a case that I existed based on the fact that I always do what they want, that would be the weakest case in the history of the world. Why? Because I don't always do what they want because I know what's best for them, and I know what they don't know, and I know what they actually do want in the future. You trust, and your trust in God should never be based on how well He has fulfilled your expectations. Your trust in God should be fulfilled on the sign He has left for you. Behold, the virgin already conceived. Behold, Jesus was already born. Behold, Jesus Jesus kept his promise. This is what gives us power. 
This is what gives us strength to embrace the sacrifice. By the way, could I just say this? Joseph was able to have that kind of faith because he knew the word of God. He knew Isaiah 7, 14. Many of you waver in faith because you don't really know the word of God. I want to say it this way. The strength of your faith cannot exceed your knowledge of the promise. The strength of your faith cannot exceed your knowledge of the promises of God. Your faith is in direct correlation. Here's the second way that he gained the strength to do it. Everybody say it with me. Say a remarkable name. A kept promise and a remarkable name. He said, behold, what am I beholding? Joseph says, you're beholding a kept promise. and You're beholding a remarkable name. This baby named Jesus was given two names. Jesus and Emmanuel. Am I the only one in the room that when you were a kid this always confused you? Because I always wanted to know which one was his name. Is anybody, is, am I the only one in this? It's like, what's your name? Like, like, was one of them a nickname, Jesus? Like, was it a nickname? You know, they called me Digger when I was growing up. It's like Craig Digger. You know, it's like, Jesus Emmanuel. What, what's going on here? What's your name? And he's like, as a 12-year-old, Jesus. My middle name is Christ. My friends call me Emmanuel. You can call me Lord. You know, it's like, like what is, I mean, imagine him in middle school. You know, it's like, what's, what's going on, Jesus? You know, well, what's going on? is that the first name, Jesus, indicates what he does. The second name, Emmanuel, indicates who he was. <laughs> Jesus in Hebrew means Yeshua. God saves. Joshua. God saves. The same derivative. God is salvation. Emmanuel means God with us. El is God. Manuel means with us. God with us. And in those two names, Joseph got a picture of the glory of God. Listen to me, church. I'm almost done. The most foundational doctrine of Christianity is that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He was born of a human, Mary, so that he could be fully man. But he was born virgin born, so he impregnated by the Holy Spirit so he could be fully God. He had to be born of a human because he had to be fully man. But yet, in being placed in the human, he was placed in the human by divine inspiration through the Holy Spirit so that he could be fully God. By the way, if you're new to church or you're streaming life, this does not mean that God came down to have intimate relationships with Mary. Because that's another crazy blasphemy that we see in today's culture. That's not what God did. God implanted it by the person of the Holy Spirit. He was born as a man because he had to, he had to be our true representative on the cross. He lived the life we were supposed to live on earth. He, he, he passed all the tests that we failed. And the died the death that we were condemned to die. He took our place on the cross as our representative. And he could only do that because he was fully man. He said, Craig, why did he have to be God? He had to be God for two reasons. Number one, he's the only, God's the only one capable to save like this. The only one capable to save like this is God. That's why he had to be God. The message of the Old Testament. Can I give you the message of the Old Testament in four words? You ready? Salvation belongs to God. That's the whole Old Testament. Take all 39 books. Salvation doesn't come from anybody else. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation comes from our God. Salvation and deliverance are in his name. Salvation comes from him alone. Listen to me. God doesn't contract out salvation to some level. Lesser being. So if some Jehovah's Witness or Mormon walks up on your doorstep, this is where they get really mad at me. They're wrong because they believe that Jesus was someone separate than the Father. Let me tell you something. God in His glory, He does not share with anyone else. Therefore, God, it is biblically impossible for God to send another person in contract to do the salvation that only belongs to He Himself. God, God owns and holds and brings salvation as God Himself. Number two reason He had to be God, because the whole point in God's creation of us was to have relationship with us. 
God's whole point in creating humans was to have relationship. In the Garden of Eden, what did God do? He walked with Adam and Eve every night. Every night he would come down and he would walk with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve said, God walks with us. When God led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he did so by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And the children of Israel said in Exodus 14, 19, the Lord is before us. The Lord is behind us. God in the wilderness had them build a tabernacle where his glory came to dwell. And in Exodus 25 and 8, they said, God is in the midst of us. Jesus is born and the angel cries out to Joseph and Mary, call him Emmanuel. God is with us. When Jesus left, he ascended back to the Father on the Mount of Olives. He came and poured out the Holy Spirit on the first disciples and they left Jerusalem saying, God is in us. What are you saying, Craig? You weren't created to serve a distant God who watches over you like a judge. You were created to love a father and walk with him like a friend. Do you know God this way? Do you know God with that kind of intimacy? It's always God's desire. The whole Bible is God's desire to be with us. Uh, With us. God. With us. Listen to me. Seeing God as Jesus And seeing God as Emmanuel finally gave Joseph the strength to follow him. Listen to me. Listen, this is the secret sauce. You ready? The secret is that everything that God is asking Joseph and Mary to do, he will do in a much greater sense for them. Let me explain. Like Mary and Joseph, Jesus, God in the flesh, would be misunderstood and falsely accused so he could ask his servants to do the same. Number two, the religious establishment would despise and condemn Mary and Joseph. The religious establishment would totally despise and condemn Jesus. Like Mary, Jesus would carry about in his body a death sentence being falsely accused, except he would actually die in shame, unlike Mary, and he would bear the curse for someone else named Mary. Self-denial. He would take upon his back a bloody cross, and he would open up his hands to have nails driven between his radius and ulna into them so that we could be saved. He did it for Mary and Joseph. He took our sin. He bore our shame. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him esteemed. The Bible says considered him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. The Bible says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Essentially Joseph is being invited to share in the sufferings of Jesus 33 years later. This is... What following Jesus looks like. Everything that Jesus experienced on earth, you have to be willing to experience if you're to be his follower. And the only way you have the strength to do that is is the fact that Jesus did it for you and now you can do it with him. I know that's not popular. By the way, this message doesn't grow churches. Did you know this? did, Did you guys know this? This clears out churches. You know this, right? As much as I want to build and God to build, I only know that this is the gospel and this is the word that is so true for the future of Christianity in our nation. It really is. Are we willing to embrace? Are we willing to really embrace? God, I want to follow you, whatever that means. Can I prove to you in closing that you're the same as Joseph? I'll prove to you. You ready? Scripturally, go to my favorite passage in Scripture, Matthew 28, 19. This is such a powerful, powerful passage. This is the Great Commission text. I want to prove to us that we are, in fact, the same as Joseph. 
How did Matthew's gospel start? Jesus is called Emmanuel. How does Matthew's gospel end? Let's see. Matthew 28, 18. The Great Commission, the end of Matthew's gospel. Look what the scripture says. Matthew 28, 18. If you've got your Bible, notice what the first word says. How does it start? Behold. What does he say? I am with you. And I tell you, I have quoted that verse for the last 10 years of my life. And I, this week, I never noticed that in terms of context. How does he start the gospel, Matthew 1? You're going to bear forth the Son, and his name will be what? Emmanuel, God with who? Us. How does he end the gospel? Lo, I am with who? Us. It's like bookends. Emmanuel. Behold, he says, I am with you. Matthew begins the gospel with Emmanuel. Matthew ends the gospel with Emmanuel. You go with him. You got to see what Joseph saw. This promise, this kept promise in the name, silenced the voices of doubt in Joseph's spirit and the dark voices that you and I, I have too. The voices that try to, try to undermine, You've got to understand, you've got to have these two things silence the doubts in you. I'm beholding a kept promise, and I'm beholding a, a, a remarkable thing. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus brings these two things together. The title of this message is Joy of the Treasure is Greater Than the Pain of the Sacrifice. Because the pain of sacrifice and the joy of Christianity come together in Jesus' shortest parable in the entire Gospels. The shortest parable he ever gives to us is Matthew chapter 13, 44. The Bible says that a man finds a treasure hidden in a field. He buries it again, goes to the owner of the field, says, can I buy your field from you? The guy's like, it's not really an impressive field. He said, no, I'll buy. You name the price. He quoted an astronomical price and he said, sold. He went and sold everything he had, all of his investments, and he said, I'll buy the field. Why? Because he knew inside that field was the pearl of great price. He knew inside that field was the treasure. Let me just make it modern day terms real quick. Imagine you're walking home one day and you're living in colonial times. No, no, imagine you're living in times now. You're walking home and you just cut through the nice prairie field to make a shortcut home. And you're walking through the field and you stub your toe. And you look down you're like, what is that? And you start digging it up and you find a treasure. But this is of inestimable importance, Zach. It's the last living shipment in of Twinkies. A whole box of Twinkies. You know these are going to be worth millions of dollars. Okay? You got a box of Twinkies. What do you do when you got a box of Twinkies? Here's what you do. You don't go tell the owner that you found Twinkies. You put the Twinkies in the ground. You cover up with dirt. You go to the owner's door and you knock on the door. Hey, 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 hey. Um, would you be willing to sell your field? He's like, uh, no. It's been in the family. It's kind of a fairly heirloom. Well, you just quote a prize. He's like, what do you like about it? I don't know. I just need peace in my life right now. I like the trees and the grass. And the birds sound really good out here. I might not deer hunt on it. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I kind of like want your land, right? And the guy's like, well, well, the only way I'm going to sell you the land, and he quotes this astronomical price. Before he gets it out of his mouth, he says, sold. The man runs home, sells everything he owns, including his house, every investment. He gets all of the money, and he throws it at the man and buys the field. Why? 
Because he knows that the treasure makes it worth it all. You will not follow Jesus with joy until you know that Jesus is the treasure that makes everything worth it all. That makes every difficulty, every challenge, every hardship, every sickness, every part, every inconvenience. We realize the only thing that gives me power to forsake it all is to see that the joy of the treasure is worth more than the pain of the sacrifice. Let me tell you this way. We, we follow Jesus because the joy of what we are attaining outweighs the pain of what we are losing. The joy of what we are attaining absolutely outweighs any pain or inconvenience we feel in this planet. And so Jesus, then in Matthew 14, uh, 13, 44, he uses two words together that never come together for the rest of the Gospels. And they're words that don't, they're not supposed to come together. And the Bible says when he sold it all and purchased the field, the Bible says he did it for joy. He willingly sacrificed for joy. Why? The only way you do that is to see that Jesus gave it up for you. He was God in the flesh coming to save you. Enduring pain and shame to rescue you. To say, God, you are Jesus. You are Emmanuel. And listen, if you lack motivation to follow Jesus, it's the last thing I put on your card, to really follow Jesus. What you don't need today is more resolve. You don't need more strength for your situation. By the way, this isn't for anybody. I'm just preaching to myself right now in my own situation, particularly my last year. You don't need more resolve. What you need is you need to deepen your joy. Why, Greg? Because when your joy in Him is strong, so will your ability to forsake everything be strong. Your joy has to be. Christianity is simultaneously joy and pain at the same time. When joy is present, sacrifice will be present. Will you close your eyes with me? Your eyes closed. I want you to ask yourself the question, what would happen if Joseph had not chosen this route? What if he had chosen the easy route? Not believe the angel, divorced Mary, cast her aside, married a different girl? Think about that. Guess what? He might have gotten a storybook wedding. He might have had a nice little carpentry business inside of Bethlehem. But he would have missed out on Jesus. If you're in this room and you are tempted to choose the easy life, let me just challenge you. You choose not to forgive a spouse. You choose not to forgive a parent. You choose not to sacrifice. You miss out on Jesus and his plan. Yet you embrace something that seems to be convenient for a time. The reality is Jesus went all in for us. And what he calls us to endure for him, he has endured in a much greater extent for all of us. Jesus has. And so always asking, I believe, for us as a community today is to say, when we look at Joseph, this is what makes Christmas an upside-down Christmas. This is what makes following Jesus so difficult, is the trust, the willingness to embrace, the willingness to sacrifice. But let me tell us and remind us pearl of great price is worth it all. We know we have a treasure. His name is Jesus. Would you stand with me all across this room? Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace, God, that causes and compels us to be the desire, the witnesses you desire us to be in our culture. God, I know in this day, in this hour, Lord, you're 
once again looking throughout the earth to show yourself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are committed to you. God, even in this community of faith today, I pray that, God, you would find people whose hearts are really committed to you that have not just the resolve to follow through, but, Lord, their joy is deepening. I pray that the sense of joy, a deep-rooted, eternal condition established by the cross. By the way, that's the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. Joy is an eternal condition. It's established by the cross and the resurrection. Lord, that that joy would build in your church. That we won't reach this world or this culture as joyless people. Only the joy of the Lord will be our strength. So this Christmas season, God, may we look again to the kept promises of our Savior, our amazing God. May we look to the remarkable name. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting Father. And you are the Prince of Peace. And so, God, I pray this Christmas season we would, again, just revere your name, lift high your name. Our joy would be made complete. Our joy would be full as we consider the pearl of great price. We lift our hands to you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.